Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new to Crosswinds, I just want to say it's great to have you. Um, as I've mentioned for the last few weeks, we are working our way through the book of Genesis. And for the last few Sundays, we have been looking at the latter part of the book of Genesis, which is the story of Joseph. Now, we've really followed his life in detail. We saw when he was sold into slavery at age 17, he ended up in Egypt, and things went terrible for him. We saw how he ended up ultimately in, dun in a dungeon, in a prison, serving time for a crime he didn't commit. But God is large and in charge. And in one day, he took him from the dungeon room to the throne room and actually made him second in command of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the ancient world at that time in that area. Just an amazing ascendancy to power. And God used him to help Egypt prepare for the famine and to sustain Egypt and really most of the ancient world through that famine. We saw that as part of that famine, Joseph's brothers ended up coming to Egypt looking for food, and they didn't realize they were bowing down before Joseph himself begging for food. We saw how Joseph tested them to find out if they were the same rotten scoundrels they had been years before to sell their own flesh and blood into slavery, and how they had changed. We also followed the moment where Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and it was a great, incredible, emotional reunion. And then last week, we were up to the point where Pharaoh heard that Joseph's brothers had arrived. It was a really pretty neat thing, because Pharaoh was pumped. He was thrilled that Joseph's brothers were in town, because, you see, Pharaoh was so delighted at what Joseph had done, and how Joseph had saved Egypt, and saved uh, good part of the ancient world, that Pharaoh wanted to bless Joseph, and he wanted to bless Joseph's brothers because of him. In fact, Pharaoh uh, promised to give Joseph's brothers the best of everything in the land of Egypt once they arrived. And then we saw last week, there's this amazing parallel there. Just as Pharaoh, the ruler of the ancient world, desired to bless Joseph's brothers, because of him, God the Father, the ruler of the universe, desires to bless us because of our elder brother, Jesus Christ, and because of the great work he has done. In fact, that's why the scriptures say that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we are the most blessed beings in the entire universe as Christians for all of eternity. Not because we deserve any of it, but simply because of Jesus and what He has done for us. Now this morning, as we uh, pick up the text and continue the story, we immediately find ourselves running into a page from the Hebrew phone book. Just a long list of genealogical names which, of course, is a complete recipe for boredom and disaster, unless you're a genealogist or a Mormon. Yeah, I'm going to take, and we're going to work through these names. I'm going to do it in a little different style. Rather than just read the text straight, I'm going to sort of graphically describe most of the text so it makes sense to you. Here is the, the story. This is a list of all the people that end up going into 
Egypt with Jacob. And we know how his family blossomed. Jacob uh, only wanted to marry one woman, which, by the way, we recommend that. Guys, only one, guy, only one woman. Uh, but he ended up being married to two and then ultimately to four because on his wedding night, his father-in-law slipped the ugly older sister into the bridal chamber. And he woke up to the mor- in the morning with a surprise of his life. And thankfully, his father-in-law gave him his, the other sister that he was actually intending to marry a week later. So he found himself married to two sisters who began competing to see who could have the most kids and then become the favored wife. And as part of that competition... Uh, they ended up giving their maids to Jacob so they could have more children vicariously through their maidservants. Now, this list is essentially just a descriptor of who his wives were and who their children were and who their children's children's were. So it's just a real simple, let's go ahead and work through it. First of all, we have Leah. Leah, across the top, you can see all of her children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, and then each one of their children that went with them. Now, by the way, the Scriptures say, through Leah, in two generations, he has 33 people in the family. Next, we have what is Zilpah, which is Leah's servant. She had two children, which are Gad and Asher. And you can see Gad and Asher, they were pretty fruitful, had a bunch of kids, And now you have 16 children in the family from that side. Of course, there was Rachel, the wife he loved. We all know about her children, Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph only had two. Benjamin had a a bunch of kids. Now you have 14 people on that side of the family through Rachel. And lastly was Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. She has Dan and Naphtali. And you only have seven people on that side of the family through her. Now, I'm going to finish the text. Isn't that a great way to cover, like, the entire genealogical list without me reading it? Hey, see it? I'm tricky. Look out. Four lines up from the bottom. We'll summarize here. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. So all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So, by the way, for the trivia buffs, before we get into this, uh, which son had the least amount of kids? Did you guys catch that? Dan had one. Which son had the most amount of kids? I heard Benjamin. Benjamin is right. How many did he have? Did you guys count that? Like 10? 10? So like, Benjamin is the youngest guy in the family. He, apparently he read that part earlier in Genesis that said, be fruitful and multiply, and he took it very seriously. So he had 10 kids. Now, as soon as you see a genealogical list like this, you say, why don't we skip this thing? Why do we even spend time in it? I mean, why is this even important to cover? Here's what you need to understand. This is not just a list of names. These are people, real people. And think of what's happened in the last three, four generations here. 
It starts off with Abraham. Abraham had one child. Isaac had two children. And all of a sudden, it is starting to multiply. Jacob has a dozen, and his kids have a bunch. And then if you count the wives, what you have is, from Jacob, you have a hundred people plus that are going into Egypt. In 400 years, they will have multiplied to be over a million people. Talk about like a major influence. You go from one person following God to like a hundred people in two generations following God to a million plus people in 400 years. This is so incredibly instructive. These are not just names, they are people, and they are people that are going to have an influence for Jesus Christ, albeit it is the Old Testament, influence for God, in the ancient world, and a huge influence. In my mind, I, I picture Jacob teaching his children about the things of God. And then a generation later, Jacob being able to see his children teach their children about the things of God, and God's family, and God's house is beginning to grow and become very influential. The more people that are out there that are following God, the more influence they have on the next generation. Now, I want to speak to those of you who are young, and who are, especially if you're young married or soon to be married, or you're in the childbearing years. You need to understand you are not just having children. You are changing the future. Think of it that way, mom and dad. You're not just changing diapers, feeding Cheerios, and using Gerber baby food jars. Those little Bible stories that you are giving into your kid's life, those are becoming the foundations from which they will build their life upon God. Those children that you have in your house, they are the next generation's church leaders. They are the next generation missionaries, the next generation pastors. They are going to touch people that you will never meet in places that you can never go. You are going to have an influence upon a generation where you will not be alive through your children huge influence. Now let me just give this to you. Many people say, you know what, I'm going to adopt the Abraham and Sarah child-rearing mentality. Let's wait until our careers are completely mature, and then we'll have maybe one child at the end. And of course, we know Abraham wanted to have a child, but just work with me on this. One child at the end of life. Then other people say, you know what, let's go with the Isaac one. We'll have two children, no more than two, sort of midlife. Because after two, it really ruins your retirement plan. And then you have Jacob's plan. Uh, I have a dozen kids. And by the next generation, I've got over a hundred people that are walking with Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. Just do a little math. If you have one child that you raise to know and love Christ... Chances are, I'm just pulling a number out of the hat, that child, over the course of their lifetime, will touch 100,000 people 
that you will never meet in places that you will never be with the gospel from their life. That little kid you're feeding Cheerios, reading Bible stories to, bringing to CW kids and is being learned, that kid will touch 100,000 people for Jesus, baby. Now, what if you don't have just one child, but you have a family of five? That's 500,000 people, half a million, that'll be impacted for Jesus out of your home. Isn't that an amazing thought? All of a sudden, it's like, you know, I'm not just having kids. God is allowing me to shape the future by having kids and raising them to know and love Jesus Christ. You know, Cindy and I have been thinking about this a little bit. Uh, I'm an only child, and Cindy is an only child from her parents' marriage. And uh, we have a dining room table that seats six, and that has almost always been adequate for our family because we're sort of a smaller family. But now we have a problem. My dad lives with us. That's one more. I have three children, so that's six people in our immediate family. And then there's this thing called Thanksgiving. We're already full. We can't even invite anybody over the home. Now, what happens, and I pray this happens, that David, my oldest, meets and marries a Christian girl. And then Daniel, the next one in line, meets and marries a Christian girl. And Deanna marries a Christian guy. And I see them having children. And with their children, I see them teaching the same Bible stories that I taught them. And they all have three kids. And all of a sudden, there is no more room, not just at the dining room table, but in the living room itself. And we're like having Thanksgiving in the garage with folding tables, because that's the only room that's big enough. But isn't that a cool thought? I'm thinking, you know, Cindy and I, are, we're old and we're using our walkers. And we're sitting there and saying, look at all the people that we've been able to influence in our family through our children. They're not just lists of names. They're people that are going to places that the two of us will never be, that are influencing people that we will never meet and never know to love and follow Jesus Christ. So I say all that. If you're a young family having kids, my word of exhortation, have more, populate the world for Christ. Yeah. Well, and then have your own list of long genealogical names. The story continues. Now, he had Judah ahead of him, sent ahead of him, to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck. And he wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now this little set of verses slips in here, and it is often completely underplayed. I would like you to think about it from this perspective. Jacob, 22 years before this, his son Joseph never came home. Jacob attended a funeral 
for his own son. Now, no parent should ever have to attend the funeral of their own child. They buried an empty box because the body was never found. And we know from Genesis 37 that after the time of mourning and grieving was over with, that it says in Scripture that Jacob never recovered, <laughs> that he was completely and just heartbroken from that point forward. And in Genesis 42, when it came time for um, Benjamin to go to Egypt, Jacob wouldn't let him go because he was so afraid of losing him like he lost Joseph. In fact, he brought the entire family to the brink of starvation because he held on to him so tightly. So he, he was completely depressed, thought he would never, ever see hope for the future again because his life was totally ruined when he lost his son Joseph. And now, think of it from Joseph's side. Joseph and Jacob were close. You know, your, your father is probably not supposed to be your best friend, but it, I think in this relationship, it certainly wasn't with his brothers, was it? Joseph and Jacob were best friends, and yet he was, his father was ripped away from him 22 years before. And in this moment is this reunion that neither of them thought would ever happen. Jacob is seeing the son alive that he thought was dead, and he's not just alive, but he is second in command of the ancient world. And Joseph... The dad he never thought he'd see again is here. And they got together, and they just cried, and they wept. And there was almost nothing they could say because it was such a sweet and wonderful moment. And then Jacob finally says this. He says, now let me die since I have seen your face. Now, like, you read that, and you're like, that is really weird. Why would you say, now let me die? Well, here's the picture. He is so incredibly happy. He didn't think this moment was ever possible. He is just filled and bursting with joy. He's like, you know, I'm an old man. I have to die sometime. And if I have to die, now is a good time because I would die happy. I would die with a smile on my face all the way home to God. Because life could not get any better than this. And here is where I want to apply it to you. I know this morning there are some of you that are here that are pretty depressed, that are pretty heartbroken because life has been difficult on you. And you're just like Jacob in Genesis chapters 37 and Genesis chapter 42, where you see no hope for the future. Everything is pessimistic and dark, and you're depressed. But I want you to know that while Jacob saw no hope for the future, God who holds the future saw hope for him. You see, some people get very depressed. They even go to the point of wanting to commit suicide. And they say, there is no hope for my future. Well, there may be no hope that you can see. But the thing is, you don't hold the future. God holds the future, and He can do things in the future that you would never dream possible. Jacob had no idea that Joseph would actually be alive and second in command of Egypt. So if you are somebody who is here, and you are completely depressed, and you are broken, and you see no hope 
for what the future may hold. Don't allow yourself to look at your circumstances. Look at your God who holds the future, who can raise people from the dead, and who can provide hope where you don't see any hope. That's exactly what we have that happened here with Jacob. As the story continues, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, and they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their livestock and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Well, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now it doesn't say this in the text, but this is what I suspect is the problem. Joseph is excited that his brothers and his family have come. Joseph knows that Pharaoh would love to bless them with the best of everything, but the problem is the best of everything is in the cities of Egypt. But if Joseph's brothers and family come into the cities of Egypt, Egypt is a land that is far from God. And it would be very easy for them to become culturally assimilated and all of a sudden to start compromising and lose their distinctiveness of their faith. So, this is what Joseph says. He says, when you come into Pharaoh, the first thing you tell him is that you come from a long line of animal lovers. You brought your cats, your dogs, your donkeys, your sheep, your cattle. <coughs> you brought them all with you. And they're all in the land of Goshen, which happens to be a wonderful place to be. If you look at this on a map, you discover that the land of Goshen has the Nile River on one side. So it's always fertile. It's, it's a great place to grow grass. It's a great place to keep your livestock. They went from Canaan, where all the livestock was skinny and dying, to the land of Goshen, where everybody was fat and happy when it comes to the livestock. It's a good place to be. He says, tell them that that's where we'd like to be. We're a long line of people like that. And then, interestingly... He says, it says he brought five of his brothers in to see Pharaoh. Now, it doesn't say it in the text, but I suspect he brought the five most redneck um, hillbilly brothers he had. Because he wants Pharaoh to say, yep, you guys are farmers. 
there is no place for you in this city. So I can picture Joseph saying to Reuben, Reuben, you know that pair of coveralls you wear that has that really nasty stain in it that mom has never been able to get out in the front that sort of like gets everybody talking? Wear those coveralls. And you know how at home when you wear the coveralls you never wear a shirt? Now's the time not to wear that shirt. Just come into Pharaoh like that. And Simeon, you know how you always have that annoying piece of straw that you keep in the corner of your mouth that you're flipping every which direction? You make sure you have that straw in your mouth. And you know how you tend to keep your thumbs in your armpits the whole day? Yeah, this is the time to do that. Keep those thumbs right in the hairy pits. And Gad, you know how you have that pair of cowboy boots you love to wear? Wear that cowboy boots and that belt buckle that looks the size of a dinner plate in the front. You know, we want you to look like total hicks. So when Pharaoh looks at you, he says, yep, out to Goshen you go. And it worked. And that's exactly where they ended up. Now we go from the brothers meeting Pharaoh to dad meeting Pharaoh. And we're going to camp on this one for a little bit. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not obtained the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And, Pharaoh ble and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. So on a day that was convenient, uh, Joseph brought his father Jacob to meet Pharaoh. You have Jacob, the head of what is a fast and growing family of over 100 people in two generations. And then you have Pharaoh, who is the head of, of the nation that is the most powerful nation in the ancient world at this time. And they get together, and the first thing that Pharaoh says to him is, how old are you? Which is not usually a good opening line. Because chances are, you look your age. And I love Jacob's response. I'm only 130. I picture him looking like Yoda. You know, leaning on staff and having that kind of ancient look. And then he has this great follow-up line. I've not achieved the days of my forefathers. Well, that's true, because Isaac lived to 180. Abraham lived to 175. He's only 130. I mean, he's got to be a pretty young guy. But then notice what he says. He says this, But few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And when I was reading through this, it just struck me. Man, this is your chance. Jacob, you're with the guy who's the most powerful man on the planet, and all you can say about the God that you serve and follow is that my life stinks. My days have been few and evil. 
Is that true? Well, it's true. Jacob did have some real bumps in his life. He did have to run from his home after he stole the birthright and blessing from his brother. He did have a, a different woman slipped into his bedroom on his wedding night, and that'll scar most men for life. Um, he did have Laban, a father-in-law that he worked for, that we learned earlier in the text, did cheat him every opportunity he could get that. We know that the wife he loved, Rachel, did die during childbirth. And we know that the son that he loved was gone for 22 years. So in some ways, he's right. Life was hard. But that's not the whole story, is it? Because in other ways, wasn't he blessed beyond his wildest dreams? Yeah, he did have Leah slipped into his, the honeymoon suite on his wedding night, but he got Rachel a week later in exchange for another seven years. Laban did try to cheat him, but we learned earlier that every time he tried to cheat him, God intervened, and whatever the wages were changed to be, that is exactly what was born in the sheep and the goats. And so all of a sudden, Jacob became filthy rich and Laban became poor. God looked out for him. His grandfather had one child. His father had two children. He has a dozen, and he has a hundred people that are around him. How much more blessed could you be in childbearing and family? The son that he thought was dead for 22 years was not dead but alive and second in command of the ancient world. How much more blessed could you be? Boy, everybody else's cattle were dying from lack of pasture. His whole family and all of his flocks had just been resettled in Goshen, specifically in Ramses, what is called the best of the land of Egypt. You could not have a better place for your flocks to be. Not only that, but Joseph was giving them food. Other people were wondering how they were going to survive. They had more than enough food to survive. They had the best of everything. And then it struck me. Isn't it true that we're just like Jacob? That each one of us tends to see the glass as half empty rather than half full? Each one of us tends to see the things that go wrong in our life. And remember that versus how good God has been to us in spite of it all. And I got thinking, you know, what does the Bible say about our attitude? What should be our attitude as Christians? Should we be pessimists? Or should we be optimists? What does the Bible say should be our attitude as we approach life? Let's turn with me under the back of the sheet. And let me just show you some things that the Bible says. Number one, it says this. My attitude is to rest. My attitude shouldn't rest on my circumstances, but it needs to rest on God's love and faithfulness. If you're like me, you like sports. And with sports, your attitudes can go up and down in a hurry, can't they? Uh, some of you guys are looking at baseball, yeah. yeah. I like wrestling. And when my sons win... I'm on cloud nine. And when they lose, I'm bummed. Seriously. Isn't that the way it works? Ups and downs depend on how your team does. And most of us look at life that way. 
If life is good, we're happy. If life is bad, we're sad. But the Bible is clear that as Christians, we are different. Our attitude doesn't come from our circumstances. Our attitude is to come from how God views us and the love he has for us through Jesus Christ. Look what it says. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Why? Because of our circumstances? No. The Lord, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love towards us endures forever and his faithfulness to us for all generations. When we come into church, we sing positive, upbeat, Christ-focused and God-focused worship songs. Even if you had a really bad week where the circumstances were bad, here's the thing. God loves you. God is good to you. God is faithful to you. So we get our eyes off of our circumstances and we put our eyes on Jesus and God the Father and we sing about our Savior. So we have a positive attitude. Another one. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you're like me, you know that if people feel good about you, it's encouraging. When somebody is irritated with you and frustrated with you, it is incredibly discouraging. And if your attitude is based on your circumstances, it goes up and down based on what people feel about you. But as Christians, where is our attitude based? It's based on God and His love for us that never changes. That's why it says, the Lord is my helper. Do not fear. What can man do to me? And then this one from Lamentations, which is incredibly helpful. It says, but I call this to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. For great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. This, the book of Lamentations, was written after Jerusalem was brutally destroyed in God's judgment upon His people. And circumstantially, everything is depressing. But where does Jeremiah say we find our hope? By looking at the circumstances around us that are all falling apart? He says, no, I have hope by looking at the steadfast love of the Lord that will not cease and knowing that his mercies towards me will not come to an end and his mercies to me are going to be new every morning. So our attitude as Christians does not come from our circumstances. Our attitude is positive. It is upbeat. It is an attitude of thankfulness and gratefulness. Because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. Secondly, a grumbling attitude, an attitude of grumbling rather, tarnishes our witness. Did you know that? Now for me, I'm usually looking for a good opportunity to insert Christ into a conversation. And it's oftentimes hard to get Christ into a conversation. 
And I was at the hardware store over the weekend, and I'm looking to buy different kind of uh, screws and torques and different bit heads. And like, hey, does that screw fit with this bolt? Oh, by the way, can I talk to you about Jesus? Like, no segue there whatsoever. Like, it doesn't work real well. But here is God's plan for us to be able to open the door to talk about the gospel. It's our attitude. That our attitude should be markedly and notably different as Christians. So people look at us and they say, why are, why are you so positive? Why are you different? And the door is open to talk about Christ. Look what the Scriptures say. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says we live in a world of grumblers and whiners. And if you have any doubt about that, look at the news after the election. Right? And let me tell you, when somebody is a grumbler or whiner, do you want to be around them? Are you drawn to them? You try to avoid them at all costs. But this is what he says. He says, our attitude should not be like that. Our attitude should be positive and grateful and filled with thanksgiving. In fact, he says that we should shine like lights, or if you are, uh, for instance, using the NIV translation, like stars in the universe. The idea is that you have a light in a dark room. Where does everybody look? To the light. Where is everybody drawn? To the light that our attitude should be different. It should be positive. It should be focused on Jesus Christ. And people are drawn to us that way. And we have an open door of opportunity to talk about Christ that way. Number three, an attitude of grumbling can lead to God's judgment. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, are you saying that God is actually going to judge people because of their grumbling? Yes, we saw today Jacob's sons moved into Egypt. 400 years later, their descendants will move out of Egypt. We go into the book of Numbers, and they are traveling through the wilderness. And what were they doing in the wilderness? Grumbling. Grumbling against Moses because they don't like his leadership. Grumbling against the food that God supernaturally provided for them each morning called manna. Like, you know, we're tired of manna souffle, manna banana bread, you know, manna cakes. We want something different. And if you look through what happened, God, in frustration with their grumbling, judged them multiple times because of their grumbling. Killed some of them because of their grumbling. And then we get down to 1 Corinthians 10, and it says this, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul says, learn from their example. God's people are not to be ungrateful, whining grumblers. 
God's people are to shine like stars in the universe as they're filled with gratefulness and thankfulness. Now, look at this last one. An attitude of gratefulness in all circumstances is God's will for us in Christ. That's simple. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That as Christians, we would be the people that are known to have an attitude of gratitude. And we would be positive people, not whiners and grumblers. Same thing in Ephesians 5.20. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, as Christians, our attitude doesn't come from our circumstances, which go up and down like the winning and losing of a sport team. Our attitude is based upon God and His steadfast, faithful love for us, and especially through Jesus Christ. That we are the most blessed beings in the entire universe. And our attitude is to show that in all circumstances and situations. We're not to be like Jacob. <laughs> and then when we have an opportunity to share, turn around and say, well, my, my days have been few and evil. It's an opportunity to say, God's been good. Very good. Now, this week is Thanksgiving. It's a time that we as a nation stop and we focus on what we need to be thankful for, how God has been good to us as a country and how God has been good to us as a individuals. Here is my challenge for you. This week, refuse to grumble and refuse to whine. Every single time that you find grumbling and whining surfacing in your heart, Say, God, I'm not going to focus on my circumstances. I'm going to focus on you and the incredible love you have for me and how blessed I am. And if that's going to be especially challenging for you, I want you to take your connection card. I want you to write on it one word, which is the word attitude. And when the ushers pick that up and I look at them this week and I see your name and I see the word attitude, I will take the time to pray for you to pray that God will give you a good, positive, God-glorifying attitude when life is difficult. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.